Now, we're in the second week of our Profiler series, and we're learning that, without a doubt, Jesus is the most controversial person who has ever lived on this earth. I mean, think about it. Who else could say with a straight face, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen God. I tell you, go to work this week and try that. Let me know how that works out for you, right? Or how about this? Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. Or I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. Or I'm the way, the truth, and the life. If you want to have a relationship with God, there's only one way. You've got to go through me. I am telling you, no one who has ever existed can make those kinds of comments without becoming the laughing stock of his generation. And I think that's what led C.S. Lewis to write this. You can shut Jesus up for a fool. You can spit at him, kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg. I love that. Or he would be the devil of hell. Lewis got it. He realized that Jesus, when he came to this earth, he didn't come to make everybody happy. He was a countercultural, revolutionary individual. But I think maybe one of the most controversial things Jesus ever said, one of the most controversial comments he ever made was in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. This is what he said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And let's be honest, that doesn't really mesh with the image that we want of Jesus. We want warm, cuddly, fuzzy, lovable Jesus. Jesus who always turns the other cheek. Jesus who never rocks the boat. But it's interesting, if you study the Gospels, you don't find Jesus making people comfortable. If you study the Gospels, you don't find Jesus trying to be fair, going out of his way to be politically correct. When you study the life of Jesus, you find him bringing swords into marriage, into business, into relationships, into culture, into society, into churches. And what does a sword do? Well, I don't know about you, but if I'm facing a sword, you basically have one or two options. You can either surrender or you can fight. But when you're facing a sword, it always forces a response. It forces a decision. It always forces a reaction. And we're going to see that again this weekend as we unpack this aspect of Jesus. As we continue uh, to look at his profile, we look at Jesus the prophet. And what did he have to say about his return to this earth and the end of time? By the way, I turned... uh, 59 last week, which means, I'm, don't clap, that's nothing to be excited about. Because Laura's already told me when I hit 60, she's trading me in for 230, so you guys pray for her, okay? But anyway, I turned 59 last week. I've been a Christian since I was five. I wish I had a dollar for every time somebody in my lifetime has predicted the return of Jesus in the end of the world. I mean, as far back as you go back, you can go historically, you're going to find people making those kind of predictions. In fact, there's a prediction out there right now that the world is going to end sometime between September 22nd and September 28th. I wouldn't be too worried about that. But I'm always uh, so uh, blown away by how these so-called experts can speak with such confidence and authority that Jesus is going to come back and the world is going to end. For example, back when I was in California and I was a younger pastor, there was a guy who actually wrote a book. You can check this out. You can probably still buy it. 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Going to Return in 1988. The problem is no one had consulted with Jesus. And he had already made plans for 1989, right? And so, you know, he actually wrote another book in 1989, 89 Reasons Why Jesus is Going to Return in 1989. It didn't sell nearly as well. You can figure that one out, right? But my point is this. As long as there have been people on the earth, there have been predictions about the return of Jesus and the end of the world, they're always wrong, and there's a reason they're always wrong. 
You know, if you read the Gospels, when Jesus was on this earth, he was often having conversations with his friends about the fact that one day, guys, he's like, get it through your head. One day I'm actually going to go to a cross. I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. Three days later, I'm going to come back to life. I'm going to spend some time with you guys. Then I'm going to ascend back to heaven. And then one day I'm going to return to this earth. And this is what Jesus said about the timing of his return. Mark chapter 13, verse 32, it says this. About that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son. Jesus says, I don't even know when I'm coming back. Only the Father. And then he says, be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. And then he goes on to tell a story beginning in verse 34. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house, he puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and he tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. My point is, nobody knows when Jesus is going to return. Jesus says, I don't even know when I'm going to come back. So it is a total waste of time for us to sit around talking about signs and wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and trying to calculate when Jesus is going to return. Understand, we are not on the planning committee. We are on the welcoming committee, okay? That means that as Christians, we have to be prepared for Jesus to return to this earth at any time. Now, if you have your Bibles this weekend, Matthew chapter 24, I want you to turn there, or you can go to your phone app. The disciples were hanging out with Jesus one day, and they were asking him some questions about the future. And Jesus talks about three signs that will indicate that human history has moved into its final phase. And Jesus, Jesus said to the disciples, when these three things take place, understand, I could return at any moment. Let me show you what the three signs were. The first sign was the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. Notice what Jesus says, Matthew chapter 24, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to call his attention to its buildings. So they're referencing the temple. Do you see all these things, Jesus asked? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. So Jesus tells the disciples, as magnificent as this temple structure is, there's going to be a day when not one stone will be left standing on another. Now looking back, we have 20-20 hindsight, right? We know that Jesus was predicting the fall of Jerusalem. It took place in 70 AD. We learned about that in our school history classes. In fact, Jesus talks about this whole process, what's going to happen in a parallel passage in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 21, beginning verse 20. He said this, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that it's desolation is near. Now Jesus is talking about this 40 years before it took place. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. Let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. I'll, I'll tell you why in a second. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against his people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. And just like Jesus predicted, his prophecy was fulfilled in 70 AD when the Roman emperor Vaspasian sent his son Titus to crush a Jewish rebellion. Understand, there was no intent whatsoever of destroying Jerusalem or destroying the temple. It was just to crush the rebellion. 
And so the Roman army, they surrounded the city for five months. It began in April, which is in the middle of Passover, which means that Jerusalem was full of Passover pilgrims. It's the, it, it swelled to a population that was almost twice the size that it normally was. The Roman army surrounded the city. No resources, no food could get into the city. And during that five-month period, the inhabitants of Jerusalem were basically reduced to cannibalism just to survive. Josephus is the great Jewish historian. He writes this. So all hope of escaping was cut off for the Jews together with their liberty of going out of the city. Then did the famine widen its progress and devour the people by whole houses and families. The upper rooms were full of women and children that were dying by famine. The lanes of the city were full of the dead and bodies of the age. The, the children also and the young man wandered about the marketplaces like shadows, swelled with famine. They fell down dead wheresoever their misery seized him. He goes on to talk about a story of a mother who killed her child and roasted her child just for food so she could survive. But during that siege of Jerusalem, 1.1 million Jews perished. And when the Roman army felt like the rebellion was crushed and the Jews had learned their lesson, when they finally moved into the city, the scene was so devastating, the scene was so tragic, they chose not to plunder the city. They literally burned the city and they destroyed the temple. They took another 97,000 Jews into captivity. And the disciples are listening to Jesus talk about this. And when they heard about the future destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, they asked Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming? And Jesus replies in verse 4, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. By the way, just so you know, historians tell us that when Jesus was on the earth, there were six other men in Palestine claiming to also be the Messiah. Jesus says, don't be fooled by that. He goes on to say in verse 6, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquake in various places. Now notice this, all these are the beginning of birth pains. So Jesus says, don't be fooled by all the fake messiahs. Don't be fooled by the wars, the rumors of wars. Don't be fooled by the disturbances in nature. They're just birth pains. They're just a prelude to what's coming. But he does tell the disciples that the destruction of the temple, well, that's something that you can keep your eye on. And sure enough, it happened in 70 AD in their lifetime, just as Jesus predicted. So that was the first sign. The second sign, Jesus says that you'll know, I could return at any time, was persecution. This is what Jesus said to the disciples in Mark chapter 13, verse 9. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. This is what he said in Luke chapter 21, verse 12. But before all of this, they will seize you and persecute you. Now understand, when Jesus was saying this, he was speaking directly to the disciples. And again... That's exactly what happened. Let me tell you what happened to the disciples. Matthew was martyred in Ethiopia with a sword. Mark died in Egypt after being drugged by horses through the city streets of Alexandria until he was dead. Luke was hanged in Greece for preaching the gospel. Peter, which I'll talk about next week, was crucified upside down. James, the half-brother of Jesus, was thrown off the southeast pinnacle of the temple. It's about 100 feet. Somehow he survived the fall, and so they beat him to death with a club. James, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded in Jerusalem. 
Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel, he was a missionary in Asia. Now it's Turkey. He was flayed to death by a whip for preaching the gospel. Andrew was crucified after being whipped by seven soldiers. He hung on for a couple of days and he died. Thomas was stabbed to death with a spear while preaching in India. Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, was killed with arrows when he wouldn't deny his faith. Matthias was stoned, beheaded. Uh, Paul was beheaded by Emperor Nero. The only one who wasn't killed was John, and he was banished to the Isle of Patmos. Jesus says it's going to happen in your lifetime, and just as Jesus predicted, that sign has already come to pass. By the way, let me just say something, because we don't talk about this often, and so we kind of overreact and panic. But as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, we should expect to be persecuted. I mean, Jesus, you know, it just says it comes with the territory. And I don't say that because I'm some kind of fatalist or sadomasochist. Jesus just constantly warned, if you follow me, get ready for it. It's going to happen. This is what Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, and that is why the world hates you. Matthew chapter 10, verse 22. You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And right now, some of you are thinking, wait a second, Mike. When I became a Christian, I didn't sign up for this. I mean, I wanted to have a better life now and go to heaven when I die. I don't, what's this whole persecution thing? Well, here would be my response to that. Surprise. Surprise, you know. But there is good news because this is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you. Have you ever been insulted because you were a follower of Jesus Christ? Blessed are you when people persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Anybody ever lied about you because of your faith in Jesus Christ? Jesus says this, rejoice and be glad. That's always our reaction when somebody's persecuting and lying us about us, right? Rejoicing, be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So if Jesus were British, he would be like, well, chin up, old chap. I mean, it just goes with the territory. You're going to be persecuted. Now, let me just say something here, and I hate that I have to address this, but sometimes society forces to address certain issues. On June 26th, the Supreme Court passed down a ruling that it was legal for same-sex marriages to take place in America. I can guarantee you in their deliberations, there was no thought of what, did G, what does God say about this or what does the Bible say about this. I guess they felt they were smarter than God, and so they decided to make this ruling. And there's been a lot of panic since then, especially among Christians. I've been stopped in Target, Walmart, uh, the gym, Home Depot, asking me what's going to happen, what's going to happen to the church, are we going to lose our tax exemption, are we going to be persecuted. I just want everybody to just relax, take a deep breath, because they made that decision on June 26th. I want you to know that we all woke up on June 27th, and God was still on the throne. He's still all-powerful. He's still all-knowing. He's immutable, which means he's the same yesterday and today and forever. He wasn't shocked. God wasn't like, wow, never saw that coming. Huh? How did they slip that one past me? See, none of, none of that was taking place, right? Now, let me just make it very clear, and you can go back and listen to Marriage 2.0, Family 2.0 series we did earlier this year. Uh, we as a church are not going to perform. I just want you to know, and I'm, this, I, I'm not a good enough typist to respond to all your emails. So 
Let me just say, we're not going to perform same-sex marriages. It's not because we're anti-gay. It's not because we're homophobic. It's because the ruling that the Supreme Court passed down does not fall within the biblical criteria of what God established marriage to be. And we're not discriminating because I had a young man in my office this week who's thinking about divorcing his wife so he could pursue another relationship. And I was very clear with him. I said, you know, I'm going to love you where you are and encourage you to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. But if you do this, we won't be able to support you and we certainly won't be able to do your next marriage because you do not have biblical grounds to get divorced and get remarried. So we just try to apply the scriptures to every situation. So we're going to continue to love people where they are. We're going to continue people to grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ, but we're not going to be performing same-sex marriage. And, of course, the question comes up, well, what if we lose our tax exemption? What if the government says you don't, you're breaking the law? Well, let me tell you something. Uh, I think it's probably hard to qualify uh, losing your tax exemption as persecution, considering that every year there's millions of people around the world who are in prison. Many lose their lives because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, In fact, we should expect it. We should expect it. Somebody kind of summed it up this week and says, well, Mike, who was surprised? I wasn't surprised, you know. I, you know, the old saying, it's just a sign of the times. By the way, uh, years and years ago, there was a gentleman named Alex Tyler. I think he was born in 1753. So we're talking a long time ago. He was a Scottish historian, and he wrote a book. And in the book, he laid out uh, a, a cycle that all great civilizations go through. And I want to just give you the cycle, and you can kind of figure out where we are in the great old United States of America He talks about all societies begin in bondage, some kind of bondage, which leads to spiritual faith. It's like, man, we're not going to get out of this without God. Spiritual faith leads to great courage. You can see this in the history of our country. Our founding fathers, many were incredibly godly men. Third, great courage leads to liberty. There's that courageous attitude, let's just do it. Liberty leads to abundance. And if you've traveled the world, you know that lands that are abundant are lands that are free, right? Abundance leads to leisure. Leisure leads to selfishness. It always happens at this point. Selfishness leads to complacency. Complacency leads to apathy. Apathy leads to dependency. And he pointed out usually it's dependency on government. Dependency leads to weakness. And weakness leads back to bondage. Now you can look at that and figure out where you think we are on that cycle as a nation. But he also points out in his book this cycle typically takes about 300 years. Well, you do the math. You do the math, okay? Now, you don't need to panic over this. I would encourage you, just eat dessert first. You just don't know how much longer you're going to have a chance to do that, right? (laughs) But Jesus says, the first sign that I could return is the destruction of the temple. The second sign is there's going to be persecution. It happened in the generation of the disciples. The third sign, Jesus says, the spread of the gospel. Mark chapter 13, verse 10, and the gospel must first be preached to all nations and what Jesus was saying there was the gospel is not going to be preached just to the Jews See, that's how it started out but he says eventually and we know this is true in the book of Acts the gospel is going to be preached to the Gentiles and we're really really glad probably because 95 percent of us sitting here this weekend are Gentiles if you're not a Jew you're a Gentile and we know that the gospel has reached the Gentiles because many of us are sitting here and our lives have been changed because of the life-changing message of Jesus Christ now, these are, the, these are the signs that Jesus talked about in Mark 13, Matthew 24, Luke chapter 21. And then Jesus summarized it all by saying in Matthew 24, verse 34, Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things 
have happened. Again, remember the context. He's speaking to his disciples. So basically what Jesus would say to us today is nothing more needs to happen. Jesus could return at any time, even before I finish this message, to which many of you right now are thinking, oh, Lord Jesus, come quickly. But let me go ahead and finish anyway, just in case he doesn't. Because this is the important part of the message. This is where I want to try to get your attention back. I want you to understand when he comes, and it very well could be today or be in our lifetime, when he comes, everything changes. When he comes, the perception that we have of him is Jesus the shepherd, Jesus the acceptance of everything, Jesus who just turns the other cheek and tolerates everything. I'm telling you, everything changes. In fact, according to Jesus' story in Mark chapter 13, we go back to that, the man who owns the house, and of course that's the reference of Jesus, he's going to come back and he's going to claim what belongs to him, and when he comes back, his reign will be unchallenged, unhindered, it will be uninterrupted, and understand, it will be unending. John, when he wrote the book of Revelation, he said in Revelation chapter 1 verse 5, he refers to Jesus as the ruler of the kings of the earth. And understand when John wrote that, uh, that was in the day not when they had different branches of government where they were fighting and there was gridlock and nothing could ever happen. In those days when the king declares something, he was the final authority. It happened. So when John says that Jesus will return as the ruler of the kings of the earth, he is saying that when Jesus returns, he will rule in every aspect, in every area of life. And I love the way the Apostle Paul develops his thought process in Philippians chapter 2. He talks about how Jesus left the splendor of heaven and came to this earth. Remember, that was Christmas, right? And how he came here and how he lived the perfect life and how he, he humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. You remember that? Then he was buried and he was put into a borrowed tomb, basically to rot. None of the disciples thought he was ever going to rise from the dead. They were walking around, man, we lost, we left everything to follow Jesus and he's dead. What are we going to do now, right? But one day, three days later, just like he predicted, he came back from the grave. Maybe you didn't know this, but once Jesus rose from the dead, he lived and walked and ate with the disciples for 40 days. 40 days, you can do the math. And then Acts chapter 1, he ascends back to heaven. Here's the question, what happened once he arrived back in heaven? Paul tells us, Philippians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 9, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, look at this, every knee should bow in heaven, on the earth, under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now let me ask you a question. Has every knee on earth bowed and recognized Jesus Christ as Lord? What's the answer to that? No. Many of you here this morning haven't. Has every tongue confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord? No. Well, what's the problem here, right? Well, let me tell you what this is saying. It's saying, till this day, 2,000 years later, after Jesus ascended back to heaven, he still hasn't received the respect and honor that's due him. Do you know why? He knows that when he comes to this earth and he reigns as rulers of the kings of the earth, he knows when he comes back to this earth the second time, it's all over. He knows that when he returns, everybody's going to fall to their face. Everybody's going to fall to their knees. Everybody's going to proclaim that he indeed is the son of God, the Messiah, the king. But see, at that point, nobody gets to choose anymore. So understand this. The reason that Jesus is still waiting to re return, the reason that he hasn't received the respect and honor that's due him, is because, because he continues to put relationship with mankind over what he's got coming to him. He continues to put the potential of having a relationship with every person on this earth over what he feels he deserves. 
Because he knows the day that he returns and he receives the glory and honor and respect that's due him. He knows that there's going to be people on this earth on that day, that moment of his return, with whom he still has no relationship and it's going to be too late. This is what Peter was talking about, 2 Peter chapter 3, when he says, man, God doesn't want anybody to perish. He wants everybody to come to repentance. Now, if you're Calvinist, this will irritate you, but, and don't email me because I don't even talk about that stuff. But John 3, 16, God so loved the world. He didn't love the chosen. He loved the world. God chose us all. The question is, are we going to choose him? And so Jesus still waits. But let me tell you something. This is what you need to hear. One day, and it may be in our lifetime, I don't know, maybe today. One day, the father is going to look at the son and say, you know what? It's time. It's time. And Jesus is going to return to this earth. This is what Paul says in verse 10. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Let's just look at that verse for a second. Because it's really easy to, to, to read over this quickly and miss the significance. Look what it says. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven. Well, who would that be? That would be the angelic host. That would be the cherubim, the seraphim that you read about in the Bible. That would also include all of our loved ones who were Christians who have died and gone to heaven. But it doesn't stop there. It says, and on the earth. That's everybody that's alive when Jesus returns. They will bow down to him. There will not be one single person who will be able to stand on their feet defiantly and resist him. You know what it will be like? You ever touch the stove? You don't sit there and think about, man, do I need to pull my hand back or not? Right? What do you do? You do? I'm telling you, when Jesus, his, his return will be so magnificent, so incredible, so overwhelming. People will automatically, not even thinking about it, they're going to hit the ground. But verse 10 also concludes, even those under the earth will bow. That's Satan, all the demonic forces. Even they're going to bow and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. What I want you to understand, Jesus isn't in heaven wringing his hands over whether one day he's ever going to get to be recognized as ruler, Lord, and king. Paul makes it very clear. The Bible makes it very clear. All will bow down. But not only is he coming as a king, he's also coming as a judge. Literally, this word judge means uh, one who defines reality or absolute truth, which is interesting. Jesus is returning as absolute truth, one who defines reality, into a culture where there is very little absolute truth anymore. You know, absolute truth used to be truth. Now everything's open for negotiation, debate, let's talk about it, let's discuss it, what's fair. But when he comes, he's coming as one who defines reality. This is what Isaiah the prophet said in Isaiah 59 11. We all growl like bears. We moan mournfully like doves. We look for justice, but find none. I mean, you turn on the news almost weekly, and you hear of a child that's been kidnapped and murdered. Parents will probably never know who did it. You wonder, where's the justice, right? Our young man walks into a Bible study in Charleston, South Carolina, has the audacity to sit through the Bible study and then kills nine in an African-American church with seemingly no remorse whatsoever. And you think, where is justice in that? Or as we saw this week, a young man who obviously went the way of terrorism and killed four of our finest. I think I heard today a fifth passed away from an injury. And we don't know why. We say, where's the justice in that? I'm telling you, it goes on every day. Liars get away with deceit, abusers. They go unpunished. We look for justice. We can't find any justice. But I want you to know, that is all going to change when Jesus comes back. 
Amos the prophet said in Amos chapter 5, verse 24, that when Jesus comes back, he says, the day is coming when, when justice will just roll like a river. It just think of a flooded river just moving through. I mean, no more cold case files, right? You know? Everything is going to be settled. Every balance, every ledger is going to be balanced. Every account is going to be put right. Jesus is going to clear everything up. Now, here's the reality. We don't know when it's going to happen, but as followers of Jesus Christ, we just know it's going to happen. So what do we do in the meantime? Well, let me give you three things that you can think about. Here's the first one. Keep busy. Keep busy. By the way, Christians often ask me if when Jesus returns, are we going to go through a judgment? And my answer is not, not in the sense that we have to be fearful or anxious about our eternal destiny. That is taken care of. The minute that we become a follower of Jesus Christ, we accept his gift of salvation, what he did for us on the cross. When our sins are forgiven, we're restored and reconciled back into a relationship with God. So our eternal destiny, that, that, that's taken care of. That's why Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But what's interesting, if you go to the latter part of Romans chapter 8, this is what Paul says beginning in verse 38. I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. And everybody wishes the verse would end there, but don't stop there. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the key. That's the key. So on one hand, those of us who are Christians, we can be very confident. We don't have anything to fear when it comes to our eternal destiny. But I do want you to understand this. We will stand before God and be judged as to how we spent our lives. And one by one, hey, we got all eternity. He'll evaluate all of our love. He'll evaluate our devotion, how we leveraged our resources for his kingdom. And on that day, we're going to be rewarded accordingly. You know, I'm always reluctant to speak about end times because Christians, we just love to talk about this stuff. Get in our little small groups. Oh, there was an earthquake. What do you think that means? Well, you think this guy's the Antichrist? Well, I think, no, she's the Antichrist. And, and uh, well, are you pre-trib or post-trib? Are you millennial post I mean, we just love to talk about and it. And we don't know. We don't have any clue what's really going to happen. That is not a proper reaction to a talk like this on the end time. You know what the proper response is? Get busy. Keep busy, keep busy, stay busy, you know. Give like you've never given, serve like you've never served, love people like you've never loved before. Share the story of how Jesus has changed your life like never before. So keep busy. Here's the second one. Keep pure. I mean, if you're, if you're really serious and you really believe that Jesus could come back at any moment, it's going gonna, it's gonna to change how you think about purity. Let me just read some verses. They speak for themselves. I got home from church last night, and Laura said, man, you used a lot of Bible verses this week. I said, well, if, 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 if there's hard things to say, it's better to let Jesus say them. So anyway, you know, you guys can email him. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. How about this? For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Look at this. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to, here's our word, purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. How about 1 John chapter 3, verse 2? Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And then John adds this, all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. So here's the obvious question. 
what's going on in your life that you wouldn't want going on if Jesus showed up at your front door today? It just kind of puts it in perspective, right? You see, the Bible says that the final episode in the history of the human race is this scene of a groom coming for his bride. Obviously, the analogy, Jesus is the groom. The church or his followers, we are the bride. And I don't know about you, but when he shows up, I want to be like any bride. I want to be dressed in white, right? I, I want to be pure. We sang about this earlier. When he shall come with trumpet sound. Remember that? I love that song. Oh, may I then in him be found. Trust in his righteousness alone. Not my righteousness, not your righteousness, his righteousness. Faultless to stand before the throne, pure. Third, keep alert. Keep alert. Jesus says in Mark 13, 34, that when the master leaves, he puts the slaves in charge. He gives them authority. He doesn't leave them floundering. He doesn't leave them powerless. He gives them a job to do. And what he's saying there is that as Christians, we're to be doing the work of the master because the master of the house is returning. So understand what we do with our lives is, is of tremendous importance. And Jesus really hammers this home. Verse 33, be on guard, be alert. Verse 35, keep watch. Verse 36, if he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch, watch. Live with that anticipation that it could be today. It could be today. This could be my last chance to talk to my neighbor. This could be the last chance to share the gospel with my coworker. Watch. So Jesus has pr promised that he's going to return one day. and he, he doesn't lie. So let me give you a new morning habit, and we'll close with this. When you get out of bed each morning this week, just look out the window and say, hey, Jesus, will I see you today? And then walk out your door and live with that sense of anticipation. And then one day you may get to say, well, hello, Jesus, finally. I've been expecting you. And you won't be embarrassed. You'll be like John wrote, even so, Lord Jesus, come. Come. Let's pray together. Let me just say this before I pray. If you're here this morning and you've been on the fence about whether or not to become a follower of Jesus Christ, um, God is a God of mercy and grace and faithfulness. But there will be a day when he'll say, okay, that's it. And that's not the side of Jesus that we like to think about. But there will be a day when he comes back as judge. And the Bible makes it very clear. Those who've made that decision to follow him, has accepted his free gift of salvation, will spend all eternity with him in a place called heaven. And those who never did will spend all eternity in a place called hell. In fact, in January, I'm going to do a series about the return of Jesus. Is there a little heaven? Is there a literal hell? The loving God sent someone to hell, and how can you keep from going there? But you don't have to wait to January. You accept what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross, realize even on your best day, you can never please God. Jesus has already done all the work for you. He died for you, so if you accept the gift of salvation, and you go to him and say, I am a sinner, I have broken God's principles. I ask for your forgiveness. You will receive his forgiveness and you will immediately be restored into a relationship with God and God will take you on as a project of develop you into the person that he created you to be. It's just that simple. And it had to be simple because it has to be available to everyone. And it's free.
And if you were just to put that simple prayer into your own words, today you would find that relationship with Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that one day, for those of us who are in the family, are like, man, come today. I don't want to deal with Monday. Come back today. But Father, because you're so compassionate and so full of mercy, you're like, yeah, if I give him just a few more days, if I give him just a few more years, if I give him just a few more decades. But Father, we know there will be a time when your patience runs out and your mercy runs out. And you will send your son back to this earth to put everything right. And I pray that we'll be ready. May we live every day with a sense of anticipation and passion, a sense of urgency. It could be today. It could be today. Reminded what Jesus says, work because the day is coming when the opportunity to work will be over. Give us that sense of passion as we reach out to reach the triangle and change the world. In your name we pray. Amen.